Well, good morning, everybody. I think I'll say it again. Merry Christmas. All right. All right. We have the Christmas spirit in the house, I can tell. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you know, preparing for this week's sermon, I read a few articles about stress and anxiety around the holidays, and so I get the sense either maybe you're not feeling it quite the same way as everyone else is, or you're hiding it really, really well. But in any case, uh, the idea that I found was the most interesting was in an article by Dr. Michael Hurd entitled, Why the Holidays Are So Stressful for So Many. And in it, he suggests the problem of holiday stress was tied to, get this, of all things, the desire to be happy. And he writes this, quote, Another reason holidays can be stressful is that so much hope is placed in them. Quote, it's my only chance to be happy all year long, so it's got to be pleasant. And this leads people, even ones who are not normally manipulative or imposing, to become this way in the desperate quest to squeeze at least a few days or weeks of happiness out of the whole year. So it sounds like for many of us, we want Christmas to be so great that the pressure for it to live up to our expectations makes us miserable. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And we start to worry. Alarm bells sound. What if my gift isn't thoughtful enough? What if it doesn't cost enough? What if the turkey overcooks? What if sad thoughts from the loss of a loved one seem to seep in? What if my dad starts talking politics? What if my brother brings his girlfriend that I hate? What if, what if, what if? What if this isn't the best Christmas ever or even in the top 10? And all these things, they sort of work together to rob us of any sense of peace that we have in a season where we just heard the angels proclaim peace on earth alarms. They start to go off. This happens in our life. And let me first just say this so we don't misunderstand the alarm bells in our lives. They're actually a good thing. Alarms guard things that are important to us. They warn us of danger. They can actually provide a sense of security that can help us have more peace. But they're not a good thing when they sound for things that aren't really a threat. So if alarm bells are going off all the time when there's no real threat, that's no good. Or if they keep sounding, even once we've identified the problem. You know, when Beck and I first bought our house, this was a long time ago. It was over a decade. We bought a house. Uh, we were proud new homeowners, and we thought, well, we need to take care of our house. So we did what a lot of people do. We got a, a house alarm, home alarm system. And we thought, well, this will help us protect our house when we're not at home, or maybe even at night if someone tries to mess with our house, the alarm will go off, and that would be help to protect us, help us have a deeper sense of security and peace. So we got this system. The only problem with it is that, as far as we could tell, the alarm would just sound at random times. The alarm would go off. You know, I'd get all, like, my courage up. I'd run downstairs to see what's happening. Nothing's happening. Okay? We'd be out on the town. Uh, trying to have a good night out, set the alarm, come back. The alarm's been sounding probably for like 30, 45 minutes. We have no idea. It could have been sounding all night. We search the house. Nothing's wrong. So we, we talked to the alarm company people and said, what's the deal? Like, it's just going off. There's nothing here. 
Uh, we go out, we come back, it's sounding, our neighbors are listening, these bells go off for hours as far as we know. And the tech said, I kid you not, oh, it's probably just a mouse. I was like, okay, so what do we do about mice? It's like, oh, you can't do anything about mice. Well, I know that. I live in Philadelphia in a row home. We share two walls. You know, occasionally, no matter what you do, you're going to have mice in West Philly. So he's like, well, you just got to live with it. We're like, so suddenly this thing where we bought to give us a little extra sense of security and peace was having the opposite effect. We couldn't go out without feeling stress about what happens when we leave. We couldn't sleep at night thinking the alarm might go off or the alarm would go off and we'd go downstairs to see what was going on and it was, ever, it was nothing. So alarms are meant to protect us. They're meant to keep us healthy. Even your body has alarms. Your stomach rumbles. You feel pangs of hunger. That's an alarm saying, I need to eat because your body needs nutrients. Your body needs sleep, so you feel tired. That's an alarm. That's right. There's a certain rhythm to life. But when things get out of whack, the things that are meant to be good for us hurt us. We have a stress response built into us when we face a threat. So when we face a threat, what happens? Our heart rate rises. Our breathing increases. We, our body releases nutrients for muscular action. There's an expansion of blood cells for our larger muscles. Our adrenaline gets going. And this response is known as the fight-flight-freeze response. Our body prepares to meet a threat. In ancient times, we may have needed this to fight off a saber-toothed tiger or something like that. But today, alarms go off for different reasons. Reasons like too much work to do, not enough time. More bills to pay than we have money. Distance we feel in an important relationship. And the response is good. It warns us of imminent danger. But what if we can't turn it off? What if like that home alarm system we had, it keeps going in a way that actually inhibits our ability to deal with the situation that's threatening us or actually takes away the sense of security and peace that it's meant to protect? Just keep sounding. And this is when concern turns into something altogether unhelpful, anxiety. So today, as we wrap our Advent series, we come to our last theme, which is peace. We're going to look at how prayer can be a key to calming our fight-flight-freeze response. We're looking at a better way to live where God's peace is released into our lives through prayer. And our hope is that today we can recognize an alternative to stress, adopt a perspective that will actually help us and experience a new reality of peace. Does that sound good over the holidays? Maybe this afternoon, maybe even in this service. So let's read our passage for today. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how can we experience peace, peace on earth, through prayer this season? Well, I think before we say anything else, it's fair to note that when Paul writes this letter, he's actually under a lot of stress. So in the beginning of this letter, he mentions a lot of things we don't have time to read, but he's writing from prison. He also writes to people who are experiencing stressful situations themselves. So 
So members of this young church are fighting, causing problems. And so he writes to them. Some of the things he writes are what we just read, but he also notes the problems. And he tells them what they can do to fix them. So he's not pretending that everything is okay. In fact, he's very specific on how to handle the conflict. So he's not suggesting as we search for peace that we just bury our heads in the sand and we pretend like everything's okay. He's really practical with the people he writes to. He really tries to give them things to do to help them. But in the midst of working those things out, even though there are real problems, even though they're worth paying attention to and addressing them directly, he says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. So the problems are real. They need to be dealt with, but worry and anxiousness won't help. And what I love about Paul here is that he doesn't just say, do not be anxious. Because I don't know that that would be particularly helpful. It's like if I tell you right now, don't think of a pink elephant. How many of you right now are thinking about pink elephants? If all we get is... Someone actually raised their hand. Uh, if all we get is a command not to do something, it simply focuses our attention on the thing we don't want to do, which makes it harder not to do it. So what Paul does is he offers an alternative, and his alternative is prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You see, worrying is trying to help us. It's our stress reflex working overtime. It's an alarm that's trying to guard our lives. It's saying there's a problem and you need to do something about it. But it offers no answers to what should be done, except you need to do something, which is not a fun feeling if that's where you stay. So when the alarm is sounding, it can be difficult to think or sleep or rest or have any peace. In essence, it puts all of the onus or all of the pressure on you to fix the problem, even if the problem is bigger than you. So Paul suggests an alternative. He suggests that we take our focus off of what we don't want to do, which is worrying, or the problem that needs to be worked out, and place it, at least for a moment, before God. It says, present your requests to God. And this, he suggests, can release peace in our lives, but only if we present our request in a certain way. And this would be Paul's perspective, which is thanksgiving. Now, be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. If you have much familiarity at all with the Bible, you'll find that this is a very big theme in the Christian scriptures. Thanksgiving. And so here again, we see Paul encouraging his readers to practice thanksgiving when praying about stressful situations. And this is so important, because I don't know if you've realized this, but without thanksgiving, prayer can actually leave you feeling less peaceful than you did before. Without thanksgiving, prayer can be bad for you. Prayer without thanksgiving can make things worse. See, without thanksgiving, prayer can be just another place to recount and think about everything that's wrong and painful. In other words, prayer becomes a place to just ruminate, to let the alarm continue to sound. And when this happens, we can feel more tired, less peaceful, and more anxious after prayer than we did before. Have you ever had that experience? 
One of the key purposes of prayer, however, is to take our focus off of the things that aren't working and remember that there is good. Anyone here know the story of Peter Pan? Probably most of us. You've heard it, seen one of the movies, one of the plays. Just in case you haven't, the backdrop for Peter Pan is actually really pretty sad. It's children who are abandoned, basically orphans, and left in a terrible circumstance. And so, uh, but the thing about Peter Pan and the story of the lost children is that they're able to overcome evil and keep a sense of hope with a combination of two things. You guys know what they are? Think about it. What are the, what, how, do the, how do the lost boys fly? Remember? No, it's not that they're dead. They're alive. A little bit of imagination. Do you guys remember? This is, this is not a trick question. Pixie dust, right? And what else? Happy thought. I hear it in the back. That's how it works. You know, you should get, now you should rent the movie or read the book. It's, it's, like, it's pretty interesting. So with a little pixie dust and one happy thought, uh, the boys of the lost world or the lost boys can fly. Now for the children, the happy thoughts are usually just simple, uh, shallow things like ice cream or puppy dogs, things like that. But it's by focusing on these positive things that they survive. They have adventures. They overcome evil. And this works for the kids but not necessarily so well for adults because one of the tricks of Peter Pan is the boys can never grow up, right? Well, in 1991, Steven Spielberg sort of played with this idea of what would happen if Peter Pan did grow up. And he directed a movie entitled Hook that told this story. And it tells the story of a grown-up Peter who sees life only as problems. He works, and he works, but all he feels is pressure and obligation. So, Puppy dogs and ice cream aren't enough for him, particularly when Hook, bored in Never Never Land, comes after Peter, and to get him to come back, he steals his two children, takes them back to Never Never Land, and he threatens, of course, to kill them if Peter doesn't come back and fight him one more time. The problem is when Peter comes back to Never Never Land, he can't fly anymore. There's plenty of pixie dust, but he can't think of a single happy thought. His life is full of stress. He's focused on problems. He can't find that thought. But as you can imagine, he does. But this time, it's not a trivial thought. It's not ice cream. It's not puppy dogs. His happy thought is being a dad. It's something real and meaningful in his life that is a real positive. So Paul, I think, is encouraging his readers not to let their lives become consumed with problems or pain or conflict. He's not saying bury in your head either, but instead he's encouraging them to remember the good things in their lives and to actively recount them, to connect to them, to make them present before themselves. He's saying remember that God is good and that he cares for you. Remember the joy of being a father. Remember the blessings, the deeper things that are more than just simple happy thoughts. There are reasons to be thankful. And to remind them of this, Paul puts it this way in this passage. He says, the Lord is near. Now here you might be saying, okay, okay, I got you, Brad. Peter Pan is a perfect example because trusting God or that God is good is like believing a fairy tale. But that would be missing the point. Paul isn't asking his readers to believe in something that's trite 
or trivial. He's encouraging them to believe in something that was a flesh and blood example of God's intention to love and care for the world. You notice how this section of Scripture concludes. It says, And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He points his readers to the example of Christ Jesus, the proof to them. And this letter isn't written so late in history that there weren't people alive who had walked with Jesus or had experiences with him, including Paul. And Jesus was the proof that God's goodness is not just a fairy tale. He points them to the evidence that God is indeed for them to the nth degree, not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all so that we so that he could renew all things through him, including us. An adult Peter needed more than ice cream and puppy dogs. And we need more than trite sayings like, just hold on, just believe, or even think a happy thought to encourage us. And God's proven love is that encouragement. That's what it's meant to be. And thanksgiving reconnects us to the perspective that God is good, that he's active, that he does want the best for us and will act on our behalf. And Paul wants his readers to have and reconnect to a perspective of the world that sees God as good and active. Because this leads to trust, even in the most trying times, which opens us up to experience something special. And that something special, our experience, is active peace. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a bit mystical. It's not totally explainable. But it seems that Paul is indicating here that when we take our problems to God, when we pray with thanksgiving, that it releases something in us, that it releases the peace of God in our lives and that the peace of God is not something that just sits there, but it's actually active. It's working to do what worry tries to do but fails. So where, we, where worry attempts to act like a guard in our life but only stresses us out, God's peace actively guards our hearts and our minds. And Paul can't quite explain how it happens. It can't totally be explained, but it's something that can be experienced. I don't know if this will work for you. I'm not a golfer, but I read a book by uh, Ken Wilson called Mystically Wired, which talks about what the effects that prayer can have in your life. And he compares prayer to a golf swing. Now, a golf swing, and I may be butchering this because I've only been golfing twice in my life, I think. It, th- there's, there's different parts to it. And he says that addressing the ball, which is coming up, and saying, hello, ball. No, that's an old joke. <laughs> Dressing the ball is when you get in position to swing. You haven't swung, right? You're just getting in position, right? And he's addressing the ball is orienting your heart towards God. You say, all right, I'm choosing to take this and present this request to God. The backswing is putting your request into words, asking for what it is that you feel like you need or for the help that you need, your daily bread, as Jesus encouraged us to pray. And that's the backswing. And the downswing pivot is shifting from asking to thinking. 
to remembering the good things in your life, the blessings in your life. Now, if you've ever played golf, as I have very limitedly, you know it can be a frustrating game. But you also know that when everything works right and you hit the ball square, the feeling that you get, and I have experienced this in my two rounds of golf in my life, is mystical. The last time I played golf, I spent most of the time trying to figure out cheats, how not to really swing but get the ball to go straight. And there was one time where I was like, whatever. And something happened where everything in my body worked the correct way and I hit the ball square and electricity went through my whole body. And it felt great. The ball went way farther than it was supposed to go because I was used to cheating. I didn't care because my body was buzzing. And I thought, oh, I finally get why people play golf. I've never played since, but I got it for a moment. In some sense, the leftover feeling of rightness in the world that comes from a good golf swing is what we can experience in prayer as we turn to God with thanksgiving. It's the pixie dust of God's active peace in our life. But just like a golf swing, it's, not, it's something that we can be bad at, <laughs> not good at immediately. It's not a worldview that comes easy sometimes. We have to practice. I think a common mistake we sometimes make is that we wait until a crisis hits and then we really hope that we can swing the club well. And we get frustrated if we don't experience the peace we hope for in that moment. Let me just say this. Uh, In my broken golf analogy, I certainly hadn't played a lot of golf, and I did experience that sort of mystical experience of connection that I didn't expect. So it doesn't matter if you haven't been practicing. Take your request to God. There's a lot of grace. You might experience him in that way. But it can be so much more helpful as a lifestyle if we develop and practice so we can live in that place. Prayer isn't really designed to sort of be a fix that we turn to when things get rough. And I think Paul here is really encouraging an ongoing perspective and practice that will release continually the peace of God into our lives so that our hearts and minds are developed with the hope and peace of God. But when a crisis hits, even if we're not starting from a familiar place, it's a good place to start. But what if we could have a grooved swing? You know, one of the things I have experienced in my neighborhood that's worked a lot better than a home alarm system is just knowing my neighbors. Um, And so over the last decade plus, we're not necessarily best friends with everyone on our block, but we know most people at least by name. We know their kids. We know often what they do for a living. Um, We know when they're going out of town and when they're in town, and the same for us. So we shut down that alarm. By the way, we're to the wise. We got locked into some crazy five-year contract we couldn't get out of, so we paid for four years and 11 months of service that we never used. (laughs) But what we have tapped into is the goodwill and the relationships in our neighborhood. And at this point in our lives, we feel more comfortable and confident and safe and secure on our block 
than anywhere in the city of Philadelphia, than the most lit corner standing next to a police officer. I feel safer in my home because I know everybody's watching. And I know that uh, if one of my neighbors sounds an alarm, it's the real deal. And they let me know about things, and we let them know about things. And I've left doors open in my house in a hurry, like wide open. Uh, and nothing's ever happened. I feel peaceful and safe because of the ongoing community protecting my peace of mind on the block. So how do we find these kinds of grooves so that we're in that good place when something happens, that we can tap into something that we know. Well, I would like to encourage us, and what better time than Christmas, uh, to develop the practice of being thankful. You know, one way that people for hundreds of years have prayed uh, to develop this connection to the good things in our lives is uh, this thing called the gratitude examine. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a Jesuit prayer practice. And I'd like to explain it to you, and I want to try it just as we wrap up the sermon time. But what I'd really like you to do, if you really want to see if this works for you, I think it can bring some peace to you even in our service today. I certainly hope so. But I'd encourage you to try this at night, before you go to bed, three nights in a row. A lot of you, you've got some time off this week you don't normally have. You're probably busier than you normally are with family in town, but you've got time off. Um, and before you go to bed, you can take five minutes and do this. And also with the holidays, hopefully it's a little easier. There's more things to point to that are obviously worth being thankful for. But here's what you do. The first thing you do, this is a great place to start, just to try and get some rootedness, some grounding, is just to take a deep breath in and out. And if you ever wonder how to do it, you can always just count to three, breathe in, hold it for a count of six, and breathe out a count of seven. Maybe do that three or four times just to calm yourself, to center yourself, to sort of reboot uh, your heart and your mind and your spirit. The second thing is really easy. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light on the day that's just passed. Just ask for his presence. Say, shine a light on this day that's just passed. And then walk through the day, memory by memory, from the time you woke up to the present. And focus on any good thing. And the slightest thing will do that became a part of your life that day, that happened that day. Pause in gratitude as you remember any good in the day. And then end with the Lord's Prayer. Isn't that easy? So take a deep breath, maybe three or four. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine light on the day that's just passed. Walk through the day with the Spirit, memory by memory, looking for anything good. And when you find it, pause in gratitude. And just remember it. And then with the Lord's Prayer. Why don't we try that this morning? What do you think? All right, so I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes. And we're going to do a few of those. Some people call them cleansing breaths, centering breaths. Um, but a lot of times, just physiologically, our bodies don't get the oxygen that they need because we, we breathe on a shallow level. So let's do this. On a three count, breathe in. Through your nose. Hold it. Count to six. And breathe out a count of seven. Let's do that again.
Let's do one more. Now let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to shine a light on just this morning that we've had. So Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to shine a light on this morning that we've just spent. Would you lead us through it and show us where God has been active and where his goodness has been present. Now, just in your own pace, start with waking up. Walk through every memory of the day. Walk through whatever you did. Did you brush your teeth? Put on a shirt, whatever it was. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you what good has been in your life this morning. And I'll leave you just some time just to walk through your memories. Did you find one? It can be as mundane as a really good cup of coffee. It can be just that coffee exists. It can be that your grandson greeted you with a hello, grandpa. It could be a hug from your daughter. It could be um, the warmth of the sun through your bedroom window, whatever it is. Pause as you encounter those things. Just pause in gratitude. I'll give you just a little more time. And then as a final prayer of thanksgiving and recognition, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. It's in your bulletin. I think it's probably projected behind me as well. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that was easy, wasn't it? That's something you can do. If you try it three nights in a row this week, I think you'll really appreciate it. You don't have to do it in the night. You do it to start your day. But usually in the night, you still remember what happened a little bit better than the next morning. And with that, we can start to practice and build a groove so that we're ready to swing um, when the time comes. All right. 
If you're on the worship team, if you go ahead and make your way forward, come on up.